0: Welcome back to episode 84. This is a blog post series titled Volume, oh, Volume 1. Yes, Tales from Volume 1. But first, before I get into what that means, this podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Kramaga, turning lambs into lions. Standard stuff at this point, if you're a regular listener. You can support us by going to utcamblog.com where these original posts were made and you can go to the Support Us tab and either make a donation or you can sign up for UTKMU, which is a separate website and if you want to get access to it and check out our curriculum, uh, you can do that. Remember it's to supplement your current training, not turn you into a psychokramaga person independently by yourself with no mentorship or guidance. Uh, so it's meant there to supplement any, kramaga or otherwise training, that you are there, and also you can see kind of how I put together the curriculum, and if it helps you learn, then great. If you think it's useless, then ma ma. You can also support us by following us on Instagram, urban tactics kramaga, Twitter, urban tactics cam. Though don't expect me to tweet much on that, terrible platform, and. What else? Facebook, Urban Tactics, Krav Maga. And, oh, of course. Shameless plug. I almost forgot. Though we're not posting as fast as we'd like, my personal YouTube channel with my partner, Joan and John stuff. if you want to see my less serious side. And uh, the person who decided to uh, be with me for a long time and see what kind of tortures they've put themselves up to, uh, you can watch that YouTube channel. So there is that. Is there anything else before we move forward? I don't think so. I'll probably remember later, but oh well. You're listening to The Warriors Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. So this is a Tales From, this is something I hope to do more regularly, but it all depends on you, the listeners, my students, and my instructors, as it is about stories that people have submitted for publication on the blog, and then consequently on to uh, the podcast of stories they've had to do with self-defense, they're on the job or off, or just situational stuff. Uh, So the examples that I have today, the three that I am for, well, one's not really a Tales from, but I threw it in here anyways, because people seem to like that one. So we have Transit Tales, thoughts on my evolving transit experience. We have Tales from the Job, my Armored Guard experience, and we have Tales from the Job of winning an international incident. Now, the first one is from Karis, our Greenbelt. the second one is from a student who, for Uh, specific reasons doesn't want to be listed with regards to this article. And then the third one there is uh, a story that I have from when I was in the military. And then the last one is titled So One May Walk in Peace. Ted, who will be be giving uh, more contributions to this podcast. Now, about this. So what I'm hoping for is that you, the listeners, or the readers submit 500 words or more Uh, on a story, whether it be transit, whether it be on the job, whether it be uh, just walking down the street, a self-defense situation that you want to share, how you handled it, Uh, things you've learned previously, such as how did training factor in, or did you panic? Did you go cold black? Uh, The whole idea is that uh, interaction with more precarious situations, you tell your story, we publish it, and then other people can learn from your experience. Now, if you want to uh, send it to us anonymously uh, although it'd be nice if i know your name but uh, if you want us to publish it anonymously we can do that or if you want to attach your name to it that's also totally fine so again i'm looking for stories on the job or just in general of (coughs) situations that you were proud or not proud of how you handled with regards to self-defense or your emotional state (coughs) now with that being said not all sub uh, submissions will be submitted. there. Ha- if we think they're uh, off in left field, then we won't. Or if we want, want you to rewrite it a bit just for like, hey, my editor does not like to have to rewrite the, a person's thing in the entirety. So there has to be a certain level of uh, writing skill there. You don't have to be amazing. Just coherent sentences would be nice. Um, so you s- feel free to submit your stories to info at com tagline uh, tales from so that we know what to look for and I don't think it's junk mail um, so you can do that again 500 words or more be honest don't fabricate stuff truthful stories and uh, hopefully we publish it I need at least three or more in order for me to run another series so have at her again send submissions to info at urban tactics uh, canada.com or check out our website Oh, yeah, that's what I forgot. KM.com. If you want to come train with us in the Metro Vancouver area, uh, you can find more contact information there. You can submit through the website, though that might get messy for my responding. And, uh, yeah, so this first one, Transit Tales. Thoughts on my ex- evolving transit experience. Now, Karis is a green belt, and I uh, can't wait for her to come back. She is currently in the Canadian military. Karis started with us when she was 15, 16, and uh, now she's a green belt and in the military, as I said. So yay. So this is her transit tale. Transit Tales. Thoughts on my evolving transit experience. As a young adult, without a vehicle, I take transit a lot. To school, to work, to Krav Maga, at all hours of the day and night. I cannot begin to tell you how many podcasts I've listened to. I'm actually writing this on the bus perhaps fittingly but that's more because i have a tendency to procrastinate and i started relying on the bus when i reached my late teens and my parents didn't want to drive from langley to richmond anymore so instead of a one-hour drive to ut cam it was a two-hour spread across one bus and two sky trains to be able to keep up with my training and as a younger teenager with no social life i went cool and proceeded to download a ton of music suddenly having a lot of time to waste i had to find ways to entertain myself i personally don't like studying or doing work on transit unless i absolutely have to procrastinating strikes again so in the beginning i used to bring books to read but i would get too distracted and be more likely to miss stops so situational awareness that thing that john likes to beat into our heads in class nah so headphones and podcasts i started listening to the utkm podcast and countless more from there i really only listen to podcasts on transit as they require some amount of focus but i can still pay attention to my surroundings i've talked to some people who prefer being able to hear what's happening around them which is fair i just need something to do before my thoughts spiral into madness as a tactical compromise i listen at a low enough volume that i can hear what I'm listening to, but I'm still able, aware, able to hear if something is happening around me. Thanks to years of Krav, I now factor in the threats when I choose where to sit. Thanks! On the SkyTrain, I'll take the single seat and sit however I need to so that my back is to a wall or a barrier. I don't like standing in the middle of the SkyTrain if I can stand against the door. On the bus, I do the same thing but I'll hide in the back of the bus. Yes, I'm further from the driver and the exit, but I can see everything and usually people will fill up the fronts first anyway. I also have the problem of needing to transit to Vancouver for work now, which is another two hours one way. Having given up on getting a good night's sleep on weekdays means I have dozed off on the transit more than I would care to admit. This hasn't resulted in any problems yet, but I still wouldn't recommend it. That's when choosing a safer place to sit can be helpful, because I do not want to sleep when someone is sitting beside me. I tend to not actually fall asleep. Rather, I just doze, opening my eyes every so often to make sure I haven't missed my stop. If you are going to sleep, though, make sure there is a decent amount of people around and that you have a way to wake up before you need to get off. Taking out headphones so you can hear more clearly could also help. And in generally, it's a safer choice. Just remember that choosing to sleep is putting yourself in white, in public area. Then there's the delightful people you get to meet. There's a few different types of people, some more tolerable than others. There are people who come up and ask for money or food. I don't tend to carry cash, and I say so. This usually isn't a big deal, and they move on. Then you have people selling something. Whether it be their religion or cause, they stand outside of the stations and try to give you flyers. Don't look, don't engage, just keep moving, throw out the flyer later, whatever works. This type is unlikely to hassle you or escalate the situation. Then you have transit police. I honestly don't see them a lot unless they are dealing with an issue on the SkyTrain or is closing. Story time. I had one person who was bothering me about buying him food. Not to judge, but he looked pretty rough. He went to go to sleep once. I agreed cause it's 10 bucks and I had a bit of time before my bus, so whatever. He was standing over me, dozing while I was sitting down. I was leaning away cause yeah, that's the uncomfortable situation. It must have looked bad to the other man in the SkyTrain car with us cause he came over and asked if I was okay. We got to my stop and as the guy was still sleeping, I just got up to leave as fast as I could and there, waiting outside the door, was our, an officer, and a medic. I just leave as they go in to the train because I don't want to be any more involved than I am already. First stage of self-defense, avoidance. I figured the second man could let transit police know enough about the guy. Thanks, random stranger. I would have not done it, so I appreciate you doing so. Lastly, as a young female, I've had guys come up and start talking to me, If you, as a male, do this, you can fuck right off. I'm not joking. I can guarantee you are making someone feel uncomfortable, and they are talking to you because they don't want to be rude. When I was younger, this used to scare me. As I've learned more Krav, I'm more confident in my ability to stop something bad from happening, but it's still awkward for me. As someone who was raised to be polite, and due to the way women in our society are socialized, shutting down strangers, I don't want to talk to is difficult, but it is something I'm working on. Don't let people get harassed on transit if you see it happening. Be like the man in my story. TransLink Now has posted a number you can text if you're worried about something that's happening, if you take transit in the lower mainland. That's all I got. Be safe. Try not to become too paranoid, like myself, as staying in orange too much can be bad. Go read the post on the color code if you don't understand what I'm saying. Don't bother other people. Also, when you complain about how far away Krav is from your place, remember that I used to take the bus for hours for one hour class. Written by Karis M, UTKM Greenbelt. If you would like to submit a story about your transit experience in relation to self-defense or violence, please make a submission to info at minimum 500 words. Published submissions will be rewarded with a three-month free access to UTKMU. For more training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you're in the metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. So, not too long, but the story of how kind of unnerving it can be to ride on transit. A um, couple things. Karis is very introverted, if you know her. So, dealing with people on transit is annoying for her as she clearly made it clear, even if it is a harmless uh, interaction with someone trying to hit on her or a crazy homeless person doing something they shouldn't be doing. Now, um, I looked up a bunch of situations with transit. Now, I'm going to, not, uh, I think I found one in BBC because it just showed up. So in, in Metro Vancouver, where we live, which again, I will stress stop worrying. It's a fairly safe city, although I will say since they uh, closed Oppenheimer Park, uh, which was for those who don't know, uh, the courts keep telling the homeless people they can't camp in the parks, and now, unfortunately, they've just sprawled more downtown, and nothing seems to be getting done about that. Now, to be fair, Vancouver homeless people are generally not violent. However, a lot of them, a large percentage of them have mental health issues So, or they're high on something and they have no idea what's going on half the time. So keep that in mind. You know, often uh, I tell people, listen, just if they're leaving you alone. You leave them alone. They're not really an issue here. Of course, if you see someone as a threat, you just go the other way. Now, with that being said, TransLink is a quasi-government, weird, private corporation, these silly... Socialist-slash-capitalism mixes. Um, TransLink has been okay managed in the last few years, but before that it was garbage. Um, probably because the Olympics, they built what we have the, called the SkyTrain, which technologically is one of the best systems in the world. From That's what they keep saying. From a practical layout, everything, uh, I think they keep screwing things up. But anyways, uh, the SkyTrain uh, is notorious for... Uh, making it easy for those who are uh, don't have a good home life, don't have a good life situation, to transit all around the city. Uh, one of the complaints when they build it in a new area is, oh, now all the homeless people are going to come here and wander around here because it's really easy. One thing they did at the very start of TransLink, like a bunch of morons, like I just goddamn idiot decision, was not to have fair gates. And so it would be the honor system. Lo and behold, many many moons later, I don't know, like five years ago, they put in fair gates, and all of a sudden, oh, our revenue went through the roof. Wait, so you're telling me the honor system doesn't fucking work most of the time? And they, all of a sudden, their revenue went skyrocketing. Um, but it also meant that uh, it was a lot more dangerous on the early days of TransLink, although it's not that expensive, a couple bucks to go. And TransLink has its own police force, and for those who don't know, on our transit here in Vancouver, there's a yellow strip on on the sides of buses and uh, on the wall and the uh, Skytrains that you press, and they'll stop it at the next Skytrain station or the bus stop and police will arrive. We have Transit Police specifically meant to handle these situations. So there is a security presence. But it should show you something, that the Transit has its own police force because it's a common problem to be dealing with uh, violent individuals or belligerent individuals or those harassing people or all sorts of stuff. They're probably quite busy running from station to station, dealing with people at all hours of the night. Uh, this is far less to do with tickets and more to do with other stuff because, I mean, they can handle the ticket thing, but it's usually not what they care about. It's usually the violent stuff. So, I can imagine. Uh, I, I always hated taking transit as a guy, and I barely took it if I had to. I would take it, and I, to this day, I still don't take it. So when they say um, they're going to switch, you know, a city like Metro Vancouver to be more green and have transit everywhere, let's just be realistic. The violent confrontations are going to go up. You know, if you drive your car, you're fine. You're safe, uh, except for other crazy drivers you're not going to have to interact with individuals on an interpersonal level that you didn't want to, so I suspect in Vancouver, the transit police, Metro Vancouver, all the greater area as well, is going to see an increase in violence on transit as they build out the lines and build out the transit system, which only took them 50 years too late. The city sucks at infrastructure planning, like, really sucks, and and, uh, the police force is going to only get bigger because they're inevitably going to have problems. Now, before I get into... I pulled up a bunch of uh, posts, you know, just Google TransLink uh, violent interactions. And it's not meant to make you fearful of getting on transit because millions of people ride it every day without an issue. It's just that you have to be aware that people don't know how to interact with other people sometimes. Uh, Whether it just be light harassment or, hey, that girl is not interested in you, fuck off, as Karis quite rightfully put it. If someone's not interested, you stop harassing them. If they continue conversating with you, then either they're being polite or they're interested. and You gotta learn the difference, guys. So, just knock it off. Um, Yeah, and so before I get into reading these posts that I found, um, I remember many years ago there was a string of bus driver attacks in Metro Vancouver. Now, in many cities, say like London or, or say New York, uh, the bus drivers are behind a plexiglass wall so that they cannot be attacked because you're in a vulnerable position if you're sitting down facing forward and someone tries to punch you in the face. It's going to be hard to catch it every time. And unlike the bus drivers in Israel who are carrying guns, uh, most bus drivers, at least in Metro Vancouver, are... Sorry if you're a bus driver. Not the healthiest people. Uh, I used to work first date at the bus depots, and uh, some of the stories I heard them tell were quite not nice about how they treated customers. Whether that's representative or not, I don't know, but I heard a lot. But I also noticed a lot of them are not healthy mentally or physically. And let's be honest, you're sitting there most of the day. So if you don't compensate for that, you're going to be limited in your ability to defend yourself. So anyways, having a conversation can you teach self-defense to the bus drivers? And I said, um, well, that depends. People don't like that answer, by the way. And what do you mean? Well, what is your use of force policy? And you can imagine bus drivers aren't allowed to do pretty much anything. Um, even if they rightfully defend themselves, they're probably going to get fired because it's bad public image. said, listen, I can teach you all sorts of stuff, but you have limited mobility. You have limited abilities to do stuff. Most of your drivers are not that capable. Physically, as far as to the skill level required to be aggressive in self defense, you should put up the plastic wall. And they said, We're not doing that. We like our freedom. We like to talk to customers and all that, blah, blah, blah. Just a bunch of nonsense. Now we have COVID. Guess what? They're behind plastic barriers. And they demanded it this time. It's like, ah, oh, hilarious. Just like people are so silly. So let's take a look at the things I found. So I found on Vancouver is Awesome, which is a local. Uh, video the local like news rag I call it that now because it's clearly a shill or higher. They they just publish stories based on getting paid. You pay them, they publish stories. So the government just has them running, you know, interference all the time nowadays and their affiliates. So, anyways, but I found this on Vancouver is awesome. Unmasked translink passenger seen spitting on male passenger who calls her disgusting. So obviously, this is during COVID because the whole mask thing. If someone didn't want to wear a mask, and you're around them, leave them alone. That was the appropriate way to do it. Don't get all caring on people. But anyways, uh, this person's response was not great, in which she spit on them. So transit police are investigating after video surfaces on social media of aggression interaction between bus tra- passengers. This was published on October twenty second, twenty twenty twelve twenty four p.m. by Sarah Garoche. Grosha Whiskey? Sorry, it's probably Polish, I think. I'm guessing. Uh, TikTok user. TikTok. Stop using TikTok. It's owned by the Chinese government, if you didn't know that. A TikTok user who has posted and stopped dance videos. God damn it. Are you kidding me? That's what the internet is? Dance videos? Not even good ones. Not like, uh, so you think you can dance or something like that. Anyways, TikTok user who has posted two other videos of Vancouver recorded the alleged assault. And then, so let's read through it. Warning, this article contains links to videos containing acts of violence and aggression. Yeah, uh, obviously you can't hear the video. Uh, Not much is known yet about the altercation caught on video where an unmasked female transit passenger spat in the face of a masked male who called her disgusting. If you name call, don't be shocked when someone does something back. Though both are not the most appropriate if the situation is violent, or potentially violent. Metro Vancouver Transit Police are currently in the early stages of investigating the incident, confirmed Sergeant Clint Hampton. The male passenger, who appears to have been spit on, is seen wiping his face. He responds to the act of assault by twice pushing the woman, who is not wearing a mask, as currently mandated by Transit, off the bus. That makes no sense because it's on the bus, you have to do it. Soon they'll be optional. You don't need to wear the mask if you're vaccinated or outside or any of that stuff. So get over yourselves. The female passenger appears to fall to the ground outside of the bus where she is approached by a bystander. Neither of the Translink passengers called Translink Police to report the incident, confirmed Hampton. We are aware of this video. Our general investigation unit is now investigating, which includes reaching out to the persons that posted the video. He elaborated. And then some Twitter handle, I guess. Uh, reason number 251 not to take translate during the pandemic so much for mandatory masks by the way you can make things mandatory all you want if people don't want to follow that expect some violent interactions and we're starting to see that no i don't agree with any violent someone's not wearing a mask you violently take them down as security which we saw i think that's absurd just tell them to go away they don't want to i'm sorry it's not that big a health risk you got lied to sorry Anyways, do not confront unmasked bus patrons' urges. Basically, the corporate America and general America, and they're not wrong, is don't do anything, you might get hurt. Right? Which also creates a society where nobody helps anybody because nobody has the skill and everyone's full of fear. So, th- I mean, it's a valid point, but, you know, if you have some skills, potentially getting involved can reduce it, but it might also make it worse. So you have to decide for yourself. Anyways, continuing, last month, a fight broke out on a Surrey bus, so if you don't know, Surrey is a uh, city equal in or greater than size of actual Vancouver, and it's had historically higher crime rates uh, for a variety of reasons. Anyways, after a passenger asked an unmasked man if he had a medical exemption to the policy, which you can't even prove, and most people just think you're full of shit anyway, the whole thing is absurd, Anyways, in response, TransLink advised customers not to press the issue. Rightfully so. Just leave people alone, you fucking Karens. If they see another passenger not wearing a face covering, we ask customers not attempt to enforce the mandatory policy. A TransLink spokesperson said, To Vancouver is awesome. Not only could this exchange end in aggression, or worse, they said not all medical exemptions are visible. Basically, it's an enforceable, unenforceable thing unless transit police come, in which case they force you, and there's no way to actually prove you have a medical exemption because there's no specific card or anything here, and it's a whole silly thing where police were actually arresting people, and people are like, yeah, they arrested them. It's like, this is absurd, guys. You're all crazy. Anyways, spot checks now show about 95% of customers are complying and wearing masks. Uh, instead, customers are encouraged to contact tri- transit police on the silent alarm. So that's a relatively minor altercation to do with the whole stupid situation and everyone's insanity that I've been driving nuts on, and I'm happy to see it almost in the rearview mirror. So let's look at another one, 604 Now, another one of these uh, less popular but kind of raggy pay-to-access, quote, news things. So, a Vancouver woman threw her backpack at a teen girl for not speaking English enough. Okay, that's racist, just saying. Uh, by Hamid Amiri, July 22nd, 2019, so probably... Yeah, the summer before COVID. On Sunday evening, a disturbing assault that being treated as a hate crime took place on a transit bus. A video of the incident shows a woman on a 95B line, which is a uh, express bus, yelling at a group of teenagers for apparently not speaking English enough. The woman apparently threatened to pull a teen girl by her hair and off the bus, not to mention the woman was preparing to get off at her bus stop. She hit the teen in the face with her backpack as she exited in a manner that rules it out as anything other than intentional. Below is a video of the incident included in a Twitter thread that has a picture of the assault of the suspect as well. Yeah, here's the thing. Don't be a racist piece of shit. And by the way, everyone is a little bit racist. Avenue Q. Um, It's a hilarious puppet Broadway show that we all seem to have forgotten about because everyone can be racist. I've experienced racism as a white person, and now it's becoming culturally normal. Silly. Don't judge people by their skin color. Just saying that that's inherently racist. If, If you didn't know, that's racist. In this case, though, it is what looks like white trash uh, getting mad. So don't be one of these people. If you live in an area with ethnic groups that you don't like, well, you're also racist, but move uh, somewhere else if it bothers you so much. Don't be a prick. So racist attacks do happen. Now, I just want to say with the the Asian hate thing, which there was an uptick. Um, I am curious, and if everyone actually knows the statistics, because I haven't seen anything legitimately broken down, in Vancouver, which has a large Asian population, including Indian and, and Chinese, etc., um, the Asian, rise in Asian hate crime, were they recording Asian on Asian attacks as Asian hate crime, and then making it look like it was all white people, because I did not see too, too many videos. In this video, by the way, this one is before COVID. I didn't see too, too many videos of white people doing it, so I'm wondering where the statistics are broken down because the whole Hong Kong, mainland China thing was a result in high Asian-on-Asian Asian, uh, attacks, in especially in the universities. So I'm wondering, see how statistics can be manipulated a little bit. Well, attacks on Asians definitely did go up because I started hearing stories from friends of friends. Um... I'm wondering who is perpetrating these attacks, because it really does matter, and it will show that everyone's a little bit racist, not just white people, if you're being honest about who's attacking who, when you actually look at it. So I'm just throwing that out there. So there is that one. That one is 604 now. So let's take another one. This is CBC, so a little bit more legitimate, although sometimes questionable. Skytrain sex assault suspect may have targeted ESL student. Man allegedly forced himself on exchange student who was too traumatized to report it at the time. So I know that if someone gets attacked that it is traumatizing and you don't want to report it, but you need to immediately. If you don't care, then you don't care. But if you are in fact traumatized by something that happened, you need to report it. I know it's tough, but you need to. Anyways, uh, this was CBC News posted January twelfth, two thousand fourteen. Now in the photos, I can see that they have, I believe, the paywall turnstile things in. I think. Last updated January, yeah, January two thousand fourteen. Transit police released footage showing a man who allegedly targeted an ESL student. And let's just see because this video doesn't specify. Guy's walking, elderly gentleman, oh, I shouldn't call him a gentleman, elderly piece of shit. Uh, He's walking back and forth, and I don't actually show much, so it doesn't show anything of the way of what might have happened. They might have been keeping it off for the sake of uh, the victim. Anyways, TransLink, Transit Police have released surveillance footage in the hopes of identifying a sexual assault suspect who may be targeting foreign exchange students. Transit Police and Drenman said the images from September show a man who allegedly forced himself on a Japanese exchange student at Gateway Sky train station in Surrey, B.C. We're hoping that we can identify this older man who sexually assaulted the ACL student because it's quite likely he's done it before and will continue to do it. Guys, report. That's how you get rid of these shitbags. The victim, a 29-year-old woman, was too traumatized to report the sexual assault at the time, a common theme. With USL students, we find that, first of all, they're often the targets of these predators. They're vulnerable because English is not familiar, and they don't know how to report it or who report it. The other thing is, I'm sorry, governments, you guys do a shitty job at teaching sort of the cultural expectations uh, for... Far as what people can and cannot do here to new immigrants or uh, whatnot. I'm just saying, all the talk. You guys suck at teaching people how things work here. So it's easy for them, just saying. 29 year old woman came forward to police later after describing a recurring nightmares to her homestay host who encouraged her to report the incident. Drennan said the woman, who spoke very little English, was trying to buy a fare in the morning of September 6th when a man approached her and offered her help. He then allegedly forced himself on her, repeatedly kissed and hugged her. Drennan said the woman was finally able to push him away and then headed to the train platform. So uh, i just say this a little bit more, but it's fine. Um, don't let people get in your personal space. Don't let people get in your personal space. That is preemptive, right? Avoid, if you see them getting too close, just create space. Try to talk them down by having your hands up. Push them away before they get close. If you feel threatened, think about using force. If you need to, groin kicks work great. Of course, create space. And if you're on the transit system, you can hit that silent alarm. In BC, at least, if your local transit system doesn't have that, I would recommend you petition to have them put on because it can report stuff without drawing too much attention to the situation until the police control up. So there is that. Next one, let me see. Charges laid, this is Mass Transit. Not sure of this publication, but hey. Charges laid in assault of TransLink bus operator. This might have been when they were all getting attacked. Vancouver man has been charged with assaulting a bus operator. April twenty seventh 2016, from TransLink. Maybe this is theirs, I don't know. Vancouver man has been charged with assaulting a bus operator. On April 19, thousand sixteen, at approximately six ten p.m., a Coast Mountain bus traveling eastbound on Broadway, so Coast Mountain Bus is a company that works with TransLink, on ninety nine B line, huh, stopped at a bus stop to at Alma and Broadway. Several passengers boarded, including a man who reportedly verbally harassing waiting passengers with derogatory remarks. The man stood at the front of the bus and continued to make derogatory remarks to the passengers and also the bus operator the operator stopped the bus at Broadway and Trutch actually i don't even know what that street is opened the doors and asked the man to get off the bus the man began to argue and then allegedly spat on the operator who left the bus and called the police the man also got off the bus and allegedly punched the operator twice on the side of the head so the bus driver got off the bus and then got punched because he obviously didn't defend himself Several passengers tried to assist the operator, but the man struck at them well before running away. Passengers ran after him and keep him in view until police arrived. That, that part is good, keeping them in view so you can actually get them, because once they're gone, unless they're on camera, uh, which a lot of the buses have now, uh, it can be hard to identify, and even then, it's a waste of police resources. Uh, again, if you choose to get involved, you better be ready to deal with physical violence so if you're not actually expecting physical violence uh, maybe you shouldn't get involved at a close range anyway arrested and charged with one count of assault as matthew michael bristow 42 the resident of vancouver bristow who is well known to police appeared in court was released on a recognized and is scheduled to make his next i would like to point out this idea i know I don't know what the number is now, but at one point it was like 300 people responsible for like 90% of petty assaults and crimes in the city. They're the same people over and over again. Our court systems are a joke. Whether they don't, the decision is these people are mentally ill, they don't belong in prison, okay, where are you going to put them? Stop letting them run around causing problems for everybody. This is an absurdity. If a person can't be reasonable with their ability to control their violence, they don't get to run around freely. I'm sorry. We need to stop this nonsense. Sure, not necessarily prison, but they can't be running around the streets. If they're petty crime, if it's a drug thing, don't care. If you're just running around stealing shit all the time, the courts need to stop just the revolving door nonsense. It's not good for them. It's not good for the public. It doesn't help anyone. It is a lazy way to approach the situation because you don't want to get yelled at. You're a fucking judge. Grow up. Anyways, hope I'm not in front of any judge who hears that, because whoops. But yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way, that this has got to stop. Another one, mass transit. Suspect in al- alleged transit sexual assault of bus operator remained in custody. A 40-year-old Burnaby man, Burnaby is east of Vancouver, north of Surrey, has been remanded in a custody following his arrest for allegedly sexually assaulting a Coast Mountain Bus Company operator in a moving bus. Risky, assault the driver while the bus is driving. (laughs) Good idea, idiot. Um, That's sarcasm, if you couldn't tell. Not the idiot part. They're an idiot. A 40-year-old Burnaby man has been remanded into custody. I read that part already. On January 12th, oh yeah, what is it? January 25th, 2017, this was written. January 12th, 2017, at approximately 6.45 p.m., a man boarded an eastbound Coast Mountain bus at Hold'em SkyTrain Station. As the bus traveled along Loghede Highway, the man approached the bus several times, offering her candy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> offering her candy and asking for information. If you didn't know, don't get into the van with the strange man offering you candy. In this case, if they're offering you candy and they're acting weird, red alert. Stranger danger. Just as the operator was turning the bus left on production way, the man approached her again and asked if she would like to go for drinks after work. As the operator was declining the invitation, the uh, man allegedly reached his hands between her legs, fondling her. So either this individual is uh, mentally deranged or doesn't understand what's socially acceptable, the operator pushed the man's hand away, pushed the alarm, and continued driving the bus, in the bus loop. The man got off and walked to the SkyTrain station. The operator continued on low where she was met by transit police and provided a description of the suspect, which was broadcast to all frontline employees. A short time later, a SkyTrain attendant advised transit police she had just seen the suspect on westbound train on Evergreen Line, which goes to Port Coquitlam, which is uh, up northeast of uh, uh, Burnaby. The train was met by transit police officer at Moody station, and suspect taken into custody. So it's good they found. Arrested and charged with sexual assault was Mohammed Sahib, previously known to police. This means I'm not picking on any particular group, but some groups of people don't run by the same social rules as us and don't want to learn them. And you can say, hey, uh, bring everyone from every country, but if you don't integrate people and really teach every community this and you can't do that here, this isn't your country, it's not appropriate in your country, but okay, don't do it here. Uh, A lot of people don't know because they think it's normal, or they're just assholes. And no, don't be like, they are not representative, fuck you, you're lying, okay? Bullshit. Some countries have different standards on how to treat women and don't lie about it. Sahib was also arrested on the existing Burnaby RCMP warrant from theft under 5,000. So he's just all around a shitty person. He has appeared in court and has been remanded into custody January 30th, 2017. So basically when you're in court or when you're charged with something and they hold you in Canada, it means they don't trust you at all. Uh, Quote, I commend this bus operator for her presence of mind in an extremely difficult situation, said Transit Police Chief Doug Lepard. By calmly alerting the communications center and maintaining control of her multi-ton moving vehicle, she ensured the safety of her passengers, Uh, pedestrians, and other motorists in the area. She provided us with an excellent description of the suspect in a timely manner, which allowed us for a quick arrest. Now, that just says... You have to remain calm in uncomfortable situations, and if you're prone to your nervous system freaking out, that's going to be difficult, and it'll mean better results if you're able to keep calm. So good for her. Everybody's journey, including that bus of operators, should be safe and violent-free. All too often, bus operators find themselves subjected to harassment or violent behavior, which puts them and their passengers at risk. Now, I just want to say, some of you bus drivers, you are jerks. And if you mouth off passengers, you better be ready. It's not right either way, but just be aware, you mouth off passengers. Sometimes that happens. That's not in this case, but it goes both ways, and I just really want to emphasize that. It takes two to tango sometimes. Now, a lot of time, it's just a crazy person or an asshole, but sometimes it's because the bus driver said something they shouldn't have. The other person still shouldn't have hit them, but you have to get the idea. Although in this case, it's sexual assault, so obviously completely unwarranted and not acceptable. Just the evening before, last approximately 5:20 p.m., a passenger who was angry because her bus operator wouldn't stop in between designated stops threw a cop of hot coffee—ew, that's brutal—down the back of the operator as she stopped the bus at the next designated stop. Don't do that. At 152nd Street on 16th Avenue in Surrey, fortunately, the operator was wearing multiple layers of clothing and was not physically injured. Lucky. The suspect managed to leave the area undetected. In 2016, 101 bus operators were assaulted, were recorded, compared to 102 in 2015. Um, So I'm just going to end it there. If it's not that many uh, drivers being assaulted, they will report it. I can imagine it's considerably more, probably in the thousands of passengers and then who don't report it. Okay, this one really kind of pisses me off. I didn't even notice because I don't take the transit. So they're used to run these ads on the bus saying, if it doesn't feel right, tell, then it's wrong. Not reporting sexual assault is the real shame. They had to re- They should rewrite it. I see why they're annoyed now. Uh, nobody should touch a uh, gesture or anything that makes you feel threatened. Now, here's a couple things. This is meant to make people realize they can report and they should report. So this is how you teach people. Here's the thing. It's only in fucking English. Now, yes, English is the first language, but let's be objective here. A lot of your transit takers do not speak or read English. You should have it in Chinese and Punjabi and perhaps one or two other languages. It's kind of critical. These kinds of messages need to be up in multiple languages. And yes, I know, I think all people should come here to learn English because it is the language here. You need to be objective about your demogra- uh, demographics. And if it's an important message that needs to be given across, it should be in multiple languages. That's how you teach people from other countries how the rules work, what's acceptable and not. Maybe they don't even know it's not acceptable. Um, so this was posted in July 28, 2014. It says how much I take transit. But SkyTrain sexual assault ads pulled by Vancouver Transit Police. The sexual assault poster campaign across the Skytrain system is being hastily removed after transit received complaints about the wording, ads suggesting the victims were to blame. So, that part I kind of understand a little bit, uh, but they shouldn't have taken it down outright. They should have rewritten how it was done. If they put it back up, I did not wait, Uh, did not do it. Uh, Sorry. If they took it down and put it back up with rewording, I am not aware because I don't take the damn transit. Because it's a pain in the ass if you're asking why. It just takes me far too long, and I want to sit there, (coughs) listening in my own world, not having to worry about getting assaulted. Not that I think I'm going to get assaulted, but I don't want to deal with that shit. Um, Neither should anyone. Um, Now, victim blaming is a thing that drives me nuts. Sometimes it is your fault. Okay? Really, stop. Sometimes it's not your fault. But from a true sort of Puritan self-defense situation, unless you're a child who doesn't know better, then it's always your fault because you're not paying attention. You're putting yourself in the wrong situations. You're putting yourself around the wrong people. Now, if it's on TransLink, well, you're taking the bus. You have to be aware. Or the this, SkyTrain, this, this people are assholes. You should be paying attention. Right? At a minimum, you need to pay attention. Now, again... No, sh- people shouldn't be attacking you and harassing you. Now, as far as sexual harassment, if it's just verbal, listen, man, communication is difficult. If it's aggressive and consistent after you, that's different because obviously the person is something's wrong with them. But you need to be objective is that communication is difficult. And sometimes people, uh, young men or boys, are not taught properly how to treat people. Uh, if someone doesn't seem interested, leave them alone. And ladies, if someone's hitting on you initially, it might be a compliment, okay? If they're aggressive or consistent or relentless, then that's a different story. But hey, I like that thing. Are you sexually harassing me? Oh, fuck off, right? We need to be realistic. There is a middle line, people, right? Now, again, I've said before, and they get in trouble, if someone is assaulted multiple times, by their friends, or multiple times by a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, and it does happen both ways, or multiple times, listen, at a certain point, you need to ask yourself, what are you doing? And we need to stop with this bullshit that this person is no way responsible, okay? Should that person attack them? No, absolutely not. But be realistic. But here's the thing, again, I know if you're traumatized, it's hard, you need to report it. If you genuinely don't care, I know people who have had stuff happen to them very bad so they don't care. For whatever reason, their mind is in a place where it doesn't bother them. And if, so, if you meet someone like that, stop trying to convince them they have PTSD. It's either going to piss them off or it's going to give them PTSD. People need to stop. Someone wants to talk about it, they will. If it is traumatizing, you often can tell if you really know a person because their behavior changes. And if you can't tell the behavior changes, then you're probably not paying attention to your friend. So just something to think. But yeah, if something happens, you should report it. Because, and the reason is, it's a social change, is that if people know there are consequences for acting like total pieces of crap, then people are less likely to do those things because the... Threat or consequence for doing those things increases, and it's we're animals. Okay, we don't want bad things to happen to us. People do things because they think they can get away with it. So you have to report stuff. But seriously, if a guy just hits on you, take it as a compliment, as long as they're not being overly rude or aggressive. Sorry, I'm not interested. Goodbye. And if they keep going, then you get aggra- you can get aggressive back. Hey, hey, man, fuck off. And if they think you're a bitch, so be it, man. Whatever. It's not okay to harass people. Now, I found this was interesting. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that one was on CBC. Um, this one was interesting in that somebody set up a uh, a blog called TransLinkHarassment.wordpress.com. Now, I don't know if it's updated. This is old. It is 2015, August 10th, 2015. This is what happens when governments don't have place to report, which they do. I'll get to that. Um, so let's read through. I've not read these yet, and I do this on purpose. Uh, I've said before, sometimes I don't like to re- look ahead of stuff. I'm just like, hey, I think, because you get my real time ex- breakdown, not some uh, plan thing. So this one was written in. August 10th, 2015. Well, aren't you creepy? So let's see what happens. Is it really creepy or is it just perceived creepy? I had an unfortunate experience on TransLink today. I was getting on a crowded bus and while standing in the front, an older man turned, leered at me and said, well, aren't you pretty? I didn't say anything, just smiled politely, signaling that I heard the compliment but didn't want to engage further. I was on the way to an addition. He continued, how do you get to be so pretty? I said nothing and tried to walk past him. That's when he stopped me and said, why don't you give me a hug? Okay, now that's the point where it gets creepy. So you can uh, ignore a person like that. You can also say, hey, thank you. Uh, and if you want to have a conversation, you can. Listen, man, old guy, whatever. When he's like, let me hug you, that's like, okay, that's creepy. So anyways, continue. I very clearly replied, no, and then tried to walk past him again. He then blocked my way past, moved close to me, said, come on, just give me a hug. Okay, that's now harassment. Without thinking, in a loud, clear voice, so that all my passengers could hear, I said, stop it, you're being inappropriate, back off, and like a dog who'd been scolded, he immediately shrunk back out of my way. See, you bring attention to it, people back off, usually, unless they're nuts. Uh, I walked to the back of the bus as far away from him as I could, he stood, the rest of the bus, staring straight forward, did not look at me. It felt good, see what happens, you tell people to fuck off where other people can hear it says, usually dealing with transit or street harassment, I just ignore it. But today I stood up for myself, right? If you can just walk away, you can. In this case, you can't. It's the Krav Maga away. I can't always walk away. You can't always avoid. Sometimes you need to confront. So let's look at another one. April 29, 2015. Word of warning. Two repeat offenders still allowed on transit. That's a problem. They linked some news articles. Two sexual predators, repeat offenders, who have both used the transit system to facilitate their predation efforts, are still allowed to ride transit. That's silliness. It's hard to enforce, though, without ankle bracelets. Um, so just saying. It is extremely difficult to have someone banned from public system like this, and even more difficult to enforce. As a result, unfortunately, it is a public to be ed- educated and aware of potential risk. Yeah, high-risk offenders should be ankle bracelets. You're not taking away their freedom to walk around, but they know they're being watched, and they know their whereabouts, and they are less likely to do stuff. And if they're unable to control it still, guess what? You don't get to roam around anymore. March 9th, 2015. Mumbling, stumbling, following. It was about 7 a.m., and I was doing my daily routine. Get up real early, stop, and get a coffee. Go to King George Skytrain Station, to Columbia, transfer, and then off to school I go. I never have any issues. My dad taught me how to take care of myself. There was a guy and I have anxieties towards brown people for personal reasons, but I'm working really hard on not pushing them into a group of all pigs. They had a bad experience. i He was slurring his words, but it was a Wednesday, and I thought either he was on drugs or handicapped because I've dealt with drugs and disabilities my whole life. I wasn't going to be rude of uh, because of anything of that, so we had small talk on the SkyTrain. See? See? <laughs> You don't have to talk, but it's an anxiety thing. I'm talking because I feel anxious if I don't. At Columbia, he continued to follow me because I take the same route every day and love to socialize. I know all the regular staff working at the station, so I knew how to get to the security attention without him noticing after he fell down the stairs on me, which I would like to add I haven't used stairs since because I'm tiny and he was a full-grown man. Turned out he was actually drunk. No shocker there. Anyways. He didn't smell like booze, and he thought, didn't cross my mind, considering it was a Wednesday morning at 7 a.m., all connected lines are the most dangerous, because that's where the stations can meet up. Male, brown, leather, jacket, spiked hair. Okay, if someone is slurring their words, give them space. If they're behind you, you can still look, pay attention. Gravity on the stairs, unfortunate, right now this person's scared of taking the stairs, which is a phobia that's going to be very hard to get over, because... Stairs are everywhere. How are you going to climb stairs if you have anxiety about it? So listen, this was completely preventable. The person just had to be a bit more attentive to the fact that this person was clearly messed up. Slurring the words, it doesn't matter whether it's mental illness, they're on drugs, or they're uh, drunk. If you are not paying attention and you let them get close in any way, this can happen. And now you're this unfortunate for this person, they're in a traumatized situation, right? This is just be aware. March 9th, 2015. Hairy situations. About a year ago, I was on the 210 in Fibs Exchange when I felt a sudden tug on one or two hairs of the back of my head, like someone was trying to pull out my hair. When I turned around, I saw the man behind me quickly tug his hands back to his lap and look out the window inconspicuously. I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt at first because it seemed ridiculous that someone would want to take my hair. But when I learned, leaned forward and watched our reflection in the window, I saw him slowly creep his way back to resting his hands on the back of my headrest. What are we in high school, guys? Like, Jesus Christ. It's like the whole, like, pull their hair. Hee, hee, I like them. Don't do it if you're an adult and you don't know the person. Then it's just assault and weird. If it's a kid doing it to another kid, it's because they don't know how to interact with other kids and communicate. Anyways, continuing. I felt really uncomfortable about confronting him, so I leaned way farther forward in my seat to pretend it wasn't happening until we both got off the bus. I found myself wondering if I should tell the bus driver or call someone about it, but wondering what a bus driver could even do. More recently, about a month back, I was standing on the millennial line holding onto a pole when things got a bit crowded. A man started getting super close to me. I thought just could be due to lack of space, but he put both his hands on the pole on either side of me, and his arms were surrounding me, and I pushed up so close that his pelvic was pushing. Yeah, don't do that. Once again, okay, that is a time where you don't let them do that, okay? And again, draw attention to yourself very loudly. Hopefully the bystander effect doesn't kick in, But there's enough white knights in Vancouver, I think, still, so there's that. Uh, A lot of these have to do with people getting too close or inappropriate touching, etc. It just goes on and on. But again, call it out if it happens to you. That's what you should be doing. Um, Okay, now, TransLink website. TransLink.ca forward slash rider guide, blah, 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 blah. Safety and security. Says how to report an incident, right? Call 911 if it's an emergency, as in it needs to be dealt with now. Weapons, violence. Uh call or text. So they have a call six oh four five one five eight three hundred, but that's also very not discreet. Uh you could also text eighty seven dot eighty seven dot a seventy seven. I think just eighty seven seven five seven eight and then five sevens. And again, if it's an emergency defined as there's an immediate threat. Serious crime it is in progress or just occurred: fight, sexual assault, or robbery. You see something immediate, like an abandoned passage, package, or passenger behaving very strangely. So, a drunk person, uh, you might be able to. Uh, it talks about transit police and how all the stuff. Remember, you have the emergency stuff, so they do have that. There is a response. And then I found this one when I typed in Translink. It is Northern Ireland, 115 assaults on staff and passengers in 2018. Huh. It seems to be a common number around 100 a year in a in a relatively safer city, I would imagine. This is November 13th, 2018, BBC News. This empire, that's BBC News. Translink staff, pa- this is not BC TransLink. Uh passenger was sold 150 times in the first eight months of 2018, so probably higher. Figures made available to BBC News show 69 physical attacks, including sexual assault. There are also 46 incidents of people verbally or threatening abuse. So, here's the thing: I don't. I'm not going to read the rest. Statistically and probabilistically, you're probably okay. Young women are going to have a, a bigger issue. This is why you should teach your girls martial arts and self-defense, so that they have the confidence to deal with someone who's getting physical. I am just saying, stand up for yourself. Make it clear. Make Socially pressure them in the moment, right? Just be aware things can get violent. Creepy old guys are going to back off if you make it clear, right? Now, crazy or intoxicated people or those on drugs may get more belligerent. So you have to have your wits about you. Is it just a creepy person? Is it a person from an ethnic background who probably has different so- used to different social rules or they're just a creep? Uh, draw the attention to them, right? If, though, it's a a generally mentally compromised individual, then you need to really think about how and what you're saying. But there is safety in numbers. But be aware, again, if you're going to get in a physical confrontation with anyone, it can go violent. Don't be naive. So transit is a necessary thing. And as I said at the beginning, as the world gets more green, which is going to take fucking forever to do in a way that doesn't piss everyone off in this city just saying um we are going to have more of these assaults inherently until we have like self-driving pod cars that are electric which we'll get there probably sooner than later i hope in the next 20 30 years so we i don't i would rather be sitting with uh my family or with my friends having an enjoyable transit experience not with a bunch of random strangers because it's always interesting particularly in the late hours of night there's always drunk people uh That's to be expected. I can only imagine what a place like New York has as far as assaults. I didn't look it up for that, but a busy place, transit system like that, probably has a much higher rate. So there is that. So I think that sums it up. That you know, a place like Vancouver is relatively safe, but it can happen. It's more unwanted touching, creeps, etc. Say something, do something, report it. Okay. So this next one is. Tales from the Job My Armored Guard Experience from a Student Who Wishes to be Unnamed for this Purpose. Tales from the Job My Armored Guard Experience A number of years ago, I landed a job with an armored car company as a guard and driver. The job itself was a combination of logistics, transportation, and security, which seemed to be perfectly suited to the type of work experience I had at the time. I maintained a Class 1 commercials license for years and had, all, had driven all sizes of a variety of trucks. I also had a security services license for quite a while and worked part-time doing things like access control at special events, bar security, retail security. There was even a period in which I worked nights and evenings as a doorman at an office building on Vancouver's downtown east side. In any case, you might say I was a shoo-in for the job. Now, as this is a Krav blog, I thought I'd impart a little personal insight and experience with respect to the actual security aspects of my job. I believe this is not only relevant to the other parts of security industry and law enforcement, but also to one's day-to-day life as it pertains to personal safety, situational awareness, and the resolution avoidance of conflict situations. The latter part of that last point being a paramount importance when one is carrying around a loaded firearm the job. For those unfamiliar with the world of armed security transport, bear in mind that the armed personnel being hired to move high-value items around is, in fact, an ages-old profession, one that predates the existence of firearms themselves. Where there is something worth selling, there has, and always will be, someone who will try to take it, sometimes by force. This is where people in my role come in. With all that in mind, of course, I was initially pretty nervous about getting into my line of work. This was in spite of the fact that the vast majority of security work I had done up until that point was, well, pretty hands-on. I had also trained in a number of different martial arts over the years, and grew up in a fairly gritty part of East Vancouver, back in the day and age where physical violence was what much more common, almost acceptable, part of our whole social vernacular. My concern, however, was that I only had limited experience with handguns themselves, and had certainly never carried one around with me. Questions arose in my mind, like, what happens if I'm receiving end of an organized robbery? What if someone gets their hands on my gun and tries to take it away from me? And how would I react to the pressures of being in an actual gunfight? What I learned in my training, and from subsequent time on the job, answered these questions and many more. For example, I learned that organized robberies are rare these days, and at least in part of the world where we live, if when they do happen, it is likely to go down fairly quickly, and as such, you may not even see it coming, and may not even have the time to react or draw your weapon. It will also likely be carried out by a group of professional thieves who, though they may be rough you up a little in process, aren't going to want to deal with murder charge and the associated problems that arise from that. You might get pistol whipped, but chances are you'll make it out alive. That being said, you still need to train and prepare for the possibility that thieves may try to kill you, and always be prepared to fight for your life or that of your partner if you have to the complexity of carrying a sidearm. We did a lot of rigorous live-fire shooting drills, and in the lead-up to my employment, often while the instructor was yelling at us, of course, a big part of training I did for my job involved hands-on weapon retention drills and scenarios. I still run those drills as often as I can, on my own, accord with or with my partner, which brings me to my next point. The likelihood that you'll have to fight for your life on the job increases significantly in a scenario where someone has closed the distance on you and is trying to pull your sidearm from the holster. This is a particularly dangerous situation where you must assume that the person is doing this attends to use your gun on you in a future robbery or murder, or even on a bunch of innocent bystanders. It's absolutely paramount that you don't let them get control of your weapon. This is one of the biggest pitfalls of carrying a loaded gun while working in what is usually crowded public areas. This is why you will often see armed guards walking around with their shooting hand resting on their speed load or magazine pouches at the front of their duty belt, with their forearm and elbow resting on the top of their grip of their gun. This is a relatively effective way of preventing easy access to the weapon without having to walk away with your hand on the grip itself. People tend to get nervous when they see you doing that. Observe and communicate. With that in mind, I still believe the best way of avoid being in either side of the aforementioned scenario in the first place really is through the use of effective observation and communication skills. Critical observation of people's behavior in conjunction with effective communication are the most useful aspects of Security Professionals Toolkit, In observing others around you, a little healthy paranoia is actually an asset in my line of work. Anything unusual taking place around you has to be at least considered as a potential threat or a ruse with which to distract you from a possible setup, a big part of addressing that involves directly communicating with anyone who approaches you before they have the chance to get in your personal space. To me, that means, hopefully, not less than 3 meters away, though at least three, 6 meters is preferable. The farther, the better in any case, though that, in many ways, is largely dependent on the environment. This also means always having a keen sense of what's going on in the environment around you at all times. If you got robbed, knocked out, or were relieved of your gun because you were on the phone or just weren't paying attention, you have critically failed the most basic level of your job. This could result in the untimely end of your life or someone else's. The Verbal Disarm So how do you communicate with people in a way that will hopefully prevent them from gaining and exploiting a tactical advantage over you? This often involves giving polite tactical commands to people who get in your personal space while you were working. For example, if someone approaches me while I'm loading an ABM, I will often put my left non-shooting handout, and say, that's close enough, is there something I can help you with? Or, sir, ma'am, I'm going to have to ask you to take a few steps back and give us some room here. To a stranger who tries to start up a conversation with me, I'll often say, I can't talk to you right now, I'm on the job. Or, there isn't a single thing we need to discuss here, I'm going to have to ask you to move along and let us work. The thing to remember is that conversation they're starting with you could very well be a distraction tactic. The key in shutting down that is to make sure that none of what you are saying to the people presents any options for them otherwise, and though it may be a little rude, is also direct and not profane in any way. You must speak to them clear, concise fashion, and often with a loud voice and definitive resolve. In some ways, it is the art of being an asshole without actually being an asshole." Now, in having members of the public occasionally try to talk to me while on the job, there are certainly pre-indicators of violence that I am on the lookout for and do have to address directly. Having, as I said before, grown up when I did and where I did, I have experienced more than my share of violence at a personal level and work. One common thread I found in the lead up to many violent events that took place was that when someone intended to do you harm, you, I found, they would often make up a story involving you and subsequently try to ram that story down your throat beforehand. It could be something as simple as, Hey, I saw you checking out my girl, or quit staring at me, or my friend said you called him a insert thing. Sometimes it was more complicated or could be quite subtle. It was almost always categorically incorrect and simply made up for the purpose of justifying whatever they were about to inflict upon you. Unfortunately, the logical reaction of ignoring or denying the story that's being told to you will simply speed up the process of you ending up in a fight. I found the best way to avert that is to change the story or a subject of the story completely. A good example of this in relation to my work is this. I have on a number of occasions had people approach me while at work with a what would you do if I are allowed to do if someone tried to rob you sort of question to me this made-up story that involves me potentially becoming the victim of a crime and naturally raises a lot of red flags this person could be testing the waters for a potential robbery as it were in these cases I will try to make them the subject of my response with something to the effect you may want to entertain the possibility that it would end very badly for you which usually makes them really uncomfortable or I will simply point out something about their personal appearance that I think they need to address immediately I might respond with hey did you think I think your fly is open I might even say something to deflect like did you see that girl that just walked by anything that changes the story and shifts their focus from me to something else The trick there is not to let them get to the end of their story, because the ending involves you getting beaten up, robbed, raped, murdered, exploited, etc. Even if it's only a hypothetical, it doesn't end well for you. And, as I said, it may well be a pre-indicator of someone who is about to do something stupid. The use of potentially lethal force. Which brings me to my final point. What happens in the case of an actual violent engagement and what are the rules by which different levels of forces are justified? In the absolute worst case scenario on the job, which is the use of deadly force on the part of an armed security person, there are three elements that need to play in to justify that. The subjects in the case must have shown a weapon, intend to use said weapon, a delivery system for the weapon. In other words, you have to be under attack and legitimately in fear of your life. But what does that mean exactly? Well, if, say, for example, someone grabs my carry-all bag full of cash from my hand in a crowded mall and then runs away with it, can I draw my gun and threaten to shoot them if they don't stop? The answer is no. If I draw on them, I'm being incredibly irresponsible and risk losing my job and authorization to carry. If I actually shoot them in that case, I am committing a crime and will likely be charged according to the outcome, murder, attempted murder, etc. If I even run after them, I am putting lives at stake once again by risking losing control of my gun and ensuing melee. At the point they have fled the scene, they are a problem for the local police to deal with. As armed guards, we are strongly encouraged to disengage whenever possible. This is a luxury that the police themselves don't have for the most part. However, if I end up in a situation where a subject has approached me, ignored any tactical commands, I've hopefully had the chance to give them at this point, and pulls a large knife from their pocket and proceeds to rush at me with it, that is the point when drawing and even using my gun might be justified. There will be a lot of factors to consider in that moment, including the presence of innocent bystanders, the terrain, environment, or the possibility of having engaged multiple subjects. The best case in that scenario is me having my service weapon out of my holster in the ready position and shouting tactical commands for the subject to drop the weapon and get on the ground, at which point the subject complies, stands down, and is likely held at gunpoint until the police arrive. The worst outcome, of course, is having to shoot the subject and deal with whatever ensues at that point. In light of what I've said here, it is my sincere hope that throughout my career, I never even have to draw my gun, much less use it. I haven't yet. In the case of what I do, a boring career is usually a long career. In the aftermath of even just a justified shooting, I would be taken off the job for an extended period of time, if not permanently. I might face some type of criminal or civil issues regarding, and yes, of course, would have yet another traumatic memory to add to the growing list in my head. Needless to say, there are a great deal of important and very critical decision-making that can take place at my job, lives may actually hang in the balance. Conclusion Beyond the possibility of a lethal encounter or more emotional scars, however, it's one of the better gigs I've had over the years. The pay is decent, the actual work itself is fairly easygoing, and it's kind of a hub for military law enforcement types with whom I often see eye to eye, which makes the work environment very positive. Honestly, there are a few groups of people I have trusted more than my current set of co-workers, but then what we do is predicated on in that many ways. The actual day-to-day reality of the gig is that people do stay out of the way for the most part, and the job can be uneventful to the point that many of us do become fairly complacent in our work. I try to avoid that by training as often as I can and definitely encourage my co-workers to do the same. I hope this gives you all some insight into what I do. I would definitely recommend this kind of work to anyone in the security industry, those of us who are aspiring to careers in law enforcement or the military, or to anyone who just wants to challenge themselves to do something that requires a higher level of personal engagement in their work. Written by a UTKM student. If you would like to submit a story about your experience in security, law enforcement, or the military in relations to self-defense, violence, de-escalation, what you have learned, and how you have handled it, please make submissions to info at urbantacticscanada.com, minimum 500 words. Published submissions will be rewarded with a three-month free access to UTKMU. For training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come and learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantactics.km. So how was that? So I think that student did a very good job at explaining de-escalation, stage two self-defense, how to uh, not get into situations with people, observe and and communicate the verbal disarm, for example, Uh, and understanding the idea that you have a sidearm capable of lethal force and you may need to use it now um, this is from Canada perspective now the Canadian perspective on security is fairly silly is that uh, even though you may be a target because you're in a uniform the base level security the get garbage training it's mostly legal training and ethical training and no use of force training because unless you're what's called a loss o- prevention officer, you're not supposed to interact. You're supposed to observe and report. Uh, so you have, at least in this province where I am, uh, I don't know specifically for the other provinces. You have a BST, which is a week course, mostly ethics and mostly legal stuff. You get your basic license. Then, if you want to become, say, a loss prevention, you do your AST, which is a two or three day course. I've yet to do that course. I plan on it. Now, once COVID goes away and I can I can do that course. Uh, I'm just interested to see what they teach, but it's a two or three day course on how to use handcuffs. Now, I have seen loss prevention. Now, if you're not sure what loss prevention, they're uh, unmarked, essentially, security in uh, places trying to catch shoplifters. It's usually uh, mentally ill or uh, drug addicts individuals. And I have personally seen uh, loss prevention officers, usually big guys, um, basically not control their force and they don't know how to handle it. They get emotional. They don't have the training. So imagine now we go into armed security in Canada, which basically the only time you can be armed security is you're protecting a diplomat, uh, your RCMP on uh, security detail, or you're protecting uh, $500,000 or more. So armored car guards would be doing so. But again, they're provided minimal training. So the idea that they can use that firearm in self-defense is uh, questionable. They get considerably less training than the police, and the police already have enough scrutiny. So here we have individuals with firearms. Now, they need firearms because uh, it's hard to find, but uh, I know from anecdotal stories of people I've talked to, a few, many years ago there was a string of armed robbery from armored car guards and banks. Now, the banks... Uh, and a lot of these aren't rec- Honestly, They'd rather you do nothing and get robbed, quite frankly, because the insurance is cheaper if they do that because they're insured. Uh, I once had a manager of a security company tell me that the actuators, these are the insurance individuals, have made the determination that it's cheaper to let you die and pay out the families than... Um, to actually train you properly because now there's all sorts of lawsuits and all that. But basically says the security industry in Canada, from what I've talked to, does not care about uh, its own employees and generally only cares about their public image and the bottom line, consistent. I think there needs to be a change in mentality for security. I think they need to stop letting people with no experience in use of force become security officers where there's a potential of use of force ...at all, which would armored car guards would be. Uh, I believe you just need your firearms license, your PAL, and a a BST to do it. No additional training needed, although that's ridiculous. And yes, as was rightly pointed out, the best solution is de-escalation. However, um, armored cars are giant targets for those more serious or brazen criminals... ...who want to attack them... Uh, Recently, there was a, I'm going to skip to this one first. There was a armored car. Now, I'm going off of the drive uh, where they're talking about a South African uh, armored car that had guys shooting at them. Now, the driver was amazing. He stayed relatively calm. His cohort co-driver was less experienced. I'll post a link in the show notes, but you really gotta see this video of them basically getting shot at. The armored car holds up, and they manage, uh, and and I believe they get out and they have to start shooting back, but the the driver does an amazing job. Now this is of course in South Africa, which is a slightly more uh, dangerous country than a lot of other places, but I pulled up just a few, uh, and and I surprisingly could not find the Canadian ones, but I know they exist. it hasn't happened in a while, but I know. So I found one from uh, CBS New York. Police man seen on video sprinting down the street after robbing armored car in the Bronx. Uh, January 22nd, 2021 was when this was published. There's a video. Again, links in the uh, show notes. Uh, New York. Police are trying to track down a man they say stole $200,000 from an armored car in the Bronx. Surveillance video shows that suspects running down the street with a bag of cash. Robbery happened around 2 p.m. Wednesday near East 167th Street. The police said security guard was unloading the money, so transition from the armored car outside a bank. The suspect shoved the guard and snatched the bag. Now that means this individual, the security, was not paying attention. Guard gave chase, tackling the suspect multiple times, which means he was not able to subdue him, which means his use of force training is garbage because he couldn't keep him down. And then it says, I see two guys fighting in the street. One witness said he take the bag and he run this way. Another surveillance camera down the block saw the man running off uh, Gerard Avenue, etc. So you get the idea. He was caught off guard because he wasn't paying attention. I don't know where his partner is. Usually there's a partner at least, and usually one of the partners is locked inside the vehicle, so the vehicle itself cannot actually be taken. It depends on the company, depends on the country, but usually smart protocol is there's minimum one person that does not leave the vehicle and is locked. They can only lock, unlock from the inside, and usually there's two other individuals. So either this was understaffed or they were just not following protocol. But he did catch him, and the guy still got away because, probably, lack of use of force. Now, that is in, um, in New York, so I don't know what their requirements are there. But I am sure they have a little bit more leeway in what they can and cannot do there. But it still failed. So here I've pulled up another one. Something called a guy named Clint. Gator 98.7 Palm Beach's Classic Rock. There we go. More footage has been released from the failed armor card r- robbery. That was May 6, 2021. These are American, so this stuff's still happening. Remember, the two guards in the cash-in-transit vehicle that survived the attempted robbery thanks to some incredible driving and bulletproof windows? Oh, they're actually talking about the South African one. Yeah, what do you know? Uh, well, new footage has been released showing the new perspective of the failed heist. In the video, we now see the view of the brave driver as he zigzags down the highway. Oh, I guess there must have been some previous video. Um, but So this one will have a link to a better video Then the other one. I'll put up both links because this has inside and outside camera views. I have not actually seen this one. But it's pretty pretty cool. You get more footage to see that. So that was South Africa. Not in America. Uh, and then I'm just going to read. This is called listverse.com. I don't know what this website is, but how accurate these are, we will see. But it says 10 brazen armored car heists that remain unsolved. 10. The Rochester Armored Motor Services America Heist. On June 26, nineteen ninety, two two guards were transporting money to a Federal Reserve branch in Buffalo, New York. Outside Rochester, they stopped for a sandwich. An unidentified woman guard went into the store, and when she did, a man with a shotgun apparently stuck the barrel of the gun into the slot of the door, and the guard by the name of Albert Raynor let the man into the cab, so failure to follow policy. He should not be doing that. Once the female guard came back to the truck she too was held at gunpoint so basically it's a failure of decision making failure to follow policy hey they stick that uh, barrel through you could actually grab it if you had to although i know it's going to be loud as fuck when it goes off and you're inside a enclosed container so there's that uh i don't want to read through all these all number nine the Rutledge brookshire armored car service depot theft uh 6 a.m january 31st 2021 Number eight, Linwood Loomis robbery. In the late mornings, February 19, 1991, uh, 48-year-old Peter Berg and 33-year-old Jeffrey Peace were making a delivery to a large grocery store. They were obviously not paying attention. And number seven, the Plymouth mail truck robbery, August 1962. On August 14th, 1962, something like 1.15 million taken. Number six, Brentwood pre later robbery. St. Patrick's Day, 1982, two men, one black and one white, said they were FBI agents with a tip that a robbery was going to happen once they got close. You know, um, FBI, CIA, uh, RCMP, any policing, how many times as a civilian do you, you ever actually see what the official IDs look like? Because someone flashes an FBI badge, you just believe them, Um. You should call local offices if you're not sure, right? Because, oh, yeah, I have a badge. You can buy those. Mm. There's usually an official government-issued ID for these kind of jobs, and nobody knows what they look like. You think that's what we would be known to the public. Hey, these are the IDs, but they don't because they don't want to counterfeit. So how is anyone supposed to know who's real and who's not? You can buy the FBI jackets, by the way, in in, uh, um, like Halloween stores, I think, even though it is illegal to... uh, Pretend to be a police officer, law enforcement agent. Number five, Yuricho Mitsubishi Bank Robbery, November 18th, 1986, in Japan. Vehicle from the Bank of Japan arrived at uh, Mitsubishi Bank in Tokyo. Uh, $4.3 million. The Brooklyn Delicatessen Caper, quite the name. 1969, I'm going to go Brooklyn, Wells Fargo. Number three, the Eden Prairie Ram security heist. That was 1989. Toronto Brinks robbery. Hey, Canada, there you go. Uh, 1980. Uh, Only 144. uh, 1.2 million with inflation. And number one, Sacramento Loomis heist in 1999. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of successful heists, which is why people think they can do it. Most of them are caught. But obviously here's a list of top 10 unsolved cases probably you know tens of millions of dollars stolen the only reason that should happen is because lack of training and not paying attention or fatigue is another reason right so here we have a situation where we have a job that minimal training is required firearms are involved and millions of dollars if you're doing these jobs just know you're putting your life potentially at risk and they can say all they want don't don't You have to protect the money at all costs, but also your life matters. Okay, which is it? Most of these people don't have the training to sufficiently defend themselves. And I should note, I don't know what they get paid in America. They don't get paid that well in Canada. It's okay, but as minimum wage increasingly goes up, their pay does not. And they're increasingly doing a dangerous job that used to have really good pay, and now slowly as inflation kicks in and, uh, Greed kicks in more, as always, as these guys are making less money for doing the same job. Uh, you should understand that about getting into any kind of security. You are putting your life on the line, period, because you are uniform. Uniform makes you target. right? That's the why there's a whole argument about concealed carry, not open carry, for self-defense in America, where it is legally allowed, because that means you're not a target. They walk past you, you pull out your firearm, and you can easily save the day. If you have the training, of course, that's the consistent part, right? So you are, of course, needing to have training. So if you're a government agency, a government in general, your security company, and you do not emphasize the need for training as mandatory nature, consistent training, you clearly are sending the message, you don't give a flying fuck about these people, but you do if your money gets stolen, right? Fun. Such is the world of assholes everywhere. So, I mean, there's not too, too much I can say beyond what was said in that, that you need to get your training. Armored car guards do get robbed quite frequently compared to other things. Their target, it's worth it for a lot of people. There is a lot of money involved. So if your company does not... Uh, give you the training you need to go get it both in firearms retention firearms use de-escalation tactics and of course hand-to-hand combat in the event you need to restrain a person so consider that now this next one is my story so I don't actually need to pull up too much to talk about it because I can remember it like it was yesterday but first here is the story Tales from the Job Avoiding an International Incident It should be no surprise to anyone who reads this blog or listens to the UTChem podcast that I spent some time in the IDF. For me, it was not a positive experience, but I learned a lot about myself and picked up a few skills along the way. Though most of my experience was uneventful, there was a particular event that stuck in my mind an event which, due to my actions, I like to think, managed to narrowly avoid turning into an unwanted international incident. If you are not aware, Israel is constantly under the microscope, either due to anti-Semitism, anti zionism self-hating Jews, or just in general scapegoating. People still don't like Jews or the nation of Israel. This should be obvious by the amount of, quote, human rights violations, quote, voted on against Israel at the UN compared to countries like, oh, I don't know, North Korea, China, Turkey, Iran, etc. You know, countries that have committed or are currently committing genocide and seem to like or stirring up violence and terrorism everywhere. But you know, Israel is, of course, the worst offender, according to the oh-so-wise and moral international bodies. While I was there, Though I witnessed or was told about goings-on that, as a Canadian, I wasn't exactly thrilled about, but those were few and far between, and nothing that I would consider a serious violation. In fact, compared to the actions of other Western armies like the U.S. or England, Israel is often the best in class. This means, however, that any little thing that those who hate can find, they will use to spin a negative view against Israel. My favorite was the one that said IDF soldiers are racist because there was no recorded rapes of Palestinians. Assessments like this are hard to find online still, as most of the links were quietly taken down. I know, right? Such an immoral army because the soldiers don't rape. Anyway, you get my point. The fact is, Israeli soldiers need to be very careful because any bad decision they make may become international news or get them killed add on to that the stress, the burden of no sleep, and the insane management skills of the Israelis, and it makes for a fun time indeed. So without further ado, I would like to share one of my favorite stories, in which I am fairly certain I avoided an international incident. It was around Nakba Day, or the Great Catastrophe, as the Palestinians put it. You can think what you want, but it's a day every year where Palestinians gather to protest, usually peacefully for the most part, against the Jewish villages or IDF bases near to their town or village. In this story, I was stationed on a mountaintop next to a Jewish settlement next to Nablus, one of the three major Palestinian cities. The city itself was basically a no-go zone, and we never much ventured into it both for safety and jurisdictional reasons. Our main concern was the three or four smaller Arab villages surrounding us. Usually, there were more of an annoyance, with kids and teens coming out to harass us on the weekly. It wasn't risky for them, since we usually just told them to go away, as up until this point, we didn't have much in the way of riot or crowd control gear, despite the fact most of what we did was police work or crowd control. Go figure. But on this day, as expected, things would be a bit more interesting. I was on the quick response team, which constituted myself and four or five other soldiers, my sergeant, and a newer second lieutenant. None of us had seen any major wars or serious combat action. We were called out as a group mob of a hundred plus was quickly encroaching on our position. It happened to be a weekend, which at this time meant fewer soldiers on base than normal, and any form of backup or assistance would probably be five or ten minutes away. All we had was ourselves, our vests, and our tavors. At first, we figured this would be like any other day. We yell at them to go away. They come to a certain point. They stop. They scream at us. Sometimes these protests, usually not this big, included foreign individuals who seem European also screaming at us. Who knows why? Misguided souls, perhaps. In this particular case, the mob was expressing a particular type of hate and anger, as they were not armed with just words, but slings as well. Have you ever heard of the story of David versus Goliath? Slings, with rocks and some training, can in fact kill. There is often a belief that because IDF soldiers have guns and Palestinians have rocks, it's not a fair fight. Except in my experience, IDF soldiers outside of war or live-fire incident are usually very, very, very reluctant to shoot at anyone—though it does happen. This comparison, while true, ignores the fact that both the gun and the rock can be deadly. In fact, if I recall correctly, a few weeks earlier, a soldier had been hit in the face with a rock from a sling and was still in intensive care as a result. A deadly tool is a deadly tool, whether it's rock or a gun. And believe me, when rocks start flying past us at speeds that would have been enough, to put us in the hospital or worse, the fear was at a significantly higher level as compared to our normal silly cat and mouse games. I was certainly scared, as we only had our guns and were greatly outnumbered. I imagine it was the same for all of us, including our commanders. At this point, we were standing in a line across the hillside, probably 10 meters apart from each other to form a loose line. The radio was buzz in Hebrew, much of which I still found difficult to understand. Our lieutenant, who was out of sight, had told our sergeant to fire in the air as per standard policy. Shooting the air was an indication that we were serious and to back off. I'd never even heard of this order being given directly. For the record, assuming there was time, the proper protocol, as we were taught, was to scream in Hebrew or Arabic back off or will shoot, rack the gun multiple times, shoot in the air, then, and only if our lives are immediately threatened, shoot at the target. This, of course, is contrary to global popular beliefs of IDF protocol, which is usually something in the realm of aggressive fantasy. More rocks fly by. As we couldn't hear the command properly, I asked my commander what he said. The commander replied, he said I should should shoot in the air. I said something to the effect, just you, sir. I think it wise if we all did it. Though at this point, some panicked, incoherent statement. Luckily, he spoke English. He hesitantly agreed. We all fired multiple shots in the air. With no earplugs or hearing protection, might I add. Ow, my earballs. It worked. The mob decided not to press further and to stay where they were. Eventually, more individuals arrived and both sides just stood their ground. The lieutenant was annoyed that we had all fired in the air, as his order was only for my sergeant to do so. I thought, what a douche. He was the senior in command, so he could have simply done it himself. But I guess that shows a lack of experience. Luckily, it's the IDF and nothing immoral or unreasonable was done, so no harm, no foul. After this encounter, I was understandably quite pissed off and scheduled a meeting with her company captain. At this time, it was a large, muscular individual whom I recall being half Russian or something and whom had previously served in the famous Duvdevan unit, known for undercover urban anti-terrorism. I railed at him in broken Hebrew in my typical fashion about why the hell didn't we have any riot control gear, tear gas, or riot shields, and how has this whole thing could have gone sideways fast and turned into an international disaster. I don't know if he was amused or annoyed. It was hard to tell, as my Hebrew was crap, and my emotional state was never great during this period. I like to think it was because of me that things changed, as I would be shocked if anyone else complained. But eventually we got some basic riot control gear, in the form of various tear gas grenades and rubber bullets to disperse crowds. From then on, we had at least had non-lethal options to avoid international incidents, which, to my knowledge at least, my squad and platoon had managed to do. Quite shocking, I know. One of the best armies in the world without proper riot control gear. I don't entirely know why that was an issue at all, but I am glad we got it, because for the next few months, though this was a relatively peaceful region, it turned out to be one of the areas most frequently experienced in active engagements compared to the rest of the IDF. I felt it, at least, with constant sleep deprivation. The most notable event in the area during this period was the murder of the Fogel family in the Itamar attack, which occurred while I was at Midkan Adam, Israel's counterterrorism warfare school, learning to be a sniper. But it certainly was representative of the increasing tensions at the time. Though I certainly didn't do this story justice, it shows that no matter how much you train or how much your training you have, not everyone is able to react quickly and intelligently under duress to avoid a worse situation. For most, there is no substitute for experience. For me, for some reason, under extreme duress is when I excel. Unfortunately, it is in normal, day-to-day interpersonal skills that I struggle. Come on, zombie apocalypse. So I seriously ask you, Do you know how well you would perform in potentially violent confrontations? Unfortunately, the only way to know is experiencing it. And in my case, this may be far from learning to walk in peace. Written by Jonathan Fader. If you would like to submit a story about your experience in security, law enforcement, or the military in relation to self-defense, violence, or de-escalation, what you learned and how you handled it, please make submissions to info at urbantacticscanada.com. Minimum 500 words. Published submissions will be rewarded with three months free access to UTKMU. For training online, visit utkmu.com. If you're in the metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. So, I like to think I avoided an international incident with my ability to think under pressure. I was probably the older person there at that time. Um, and it gives you a little bit of insight into the whole Israel situation yes there are soldiers that are shitbags I saw some not many but some most Israeli soldiers don't really want to be there they have to be there and some that do usually saw their friend getting blown up when they were young and they have PTSD related to it and hatred so you need to have that in context but from what I can saw, saw s- for the most part People didn't really want to be there. Nobody was eager to shoot anyone. Uh, It was not... Well, again, not nobody. 99% of people were not eager. We didn't want to. In this case, we had to discharge our firearms, and it was warranted because it was getting very dicey. It's the only time in the military I felt fear as far as a situation that we were involved in because uh, despite the fact we were constantly dealing with a silly cat-and-mouse game, um Every Saturday, the Palestinian kids would come out. We'd get called just to go and watch. We watch. They do their thing. As they get closer and closer, we're like, okay, now we need to go a little closer. Most of the time, we never discharge your firearms because it wasn't warranted. Uh Usually uh, we would just stand there and they would go away. They'd yell, they'd scream, they'd shout. I guess they have no other form of entertainment. We would just stand there. Um, after this hint is incident, however, which clearly showed we needed riot control gear. Now, if you go into the actual article, you can see the image on the left is me with a Tavor Tar-21. Uh, that's the one you can't see. And then an M-16 uh, or a variant with an attachment that allows us to shoot these bouncy gas grenades. So we got those later on. Uh, Later, we also got uh, hand-thrown gas grenades, uh, stun grenades, which are basically useless in the field, just saying, uh, and beanbag and rubber bullets, if we needed them, Um, which only ended up getting used once in a while when there was sufficient enough numbers, and we were concerned that it was getting too close. But here's the thing with those. Good luck aiming. They are not exactly aerodynamic and you try your best to hit them in a safe spot, it's not always possible. So when you are judging riot control people, while there is certainly the mob mentality, fear, and group us versus them kicking in, a lot of the tools used for um, riot control are not exactly precision and are prone to not hitting the target, which is why every once in a while you hear stories about someone getting hit in the head and hospitalized with a beanbag bullet or uh it's not really a bullet beanbag projectile or rubber uh projectile because they can't aim reasonably. They're not aerodynamic. Yes, I am sure there are cases where people are aiming right for their face. Don't do that. They're not meant for that. They're meant for the body or below. But beyond a certain range it's very difficult to actually accurately shoot. Um now back to the actual incident is that um It was do or die, literally. If we didn't do anything, they were going to rush us. And they had slings. Now, a common argument, which is both correct and incorrect, that is made to defend Palestinians is, oh, they just have rocks. You guys have guns. Again, in a day-to-day situation, unless there's a knife or a gun present of the assailant or individual, everyone is exceptionally reluctant. Like, I mean really reluctant to actually shoot someone. Despite what you may have heard, despite what you think, the IDF is very reluctant to use lethal force. They don't want to on a day-to-day basis. Outside of established combat zones, I mean, like we're shooting at each other. Outside of the, if someone has a knife or a gun pulled on a soldier, you're going to get shot. Sorry, that's self-defense. End of story, period. So, fuck you if you think otherwise. And I mean that with all malice. If someone pulls a gun and a knife on a uniformed soldier, it's with an intent to kill, they're going to get shot. But other than that, again, there was, what I saw, extreme resistance to actually use lethal force. So, this time, there was a 100 or so, or more, maybe even two, 300. I didn't get exact count, because I'm panicking. And, uh... We had to shoot in the air and if we didn't shoot in the air and they decided to charge with those slings, we're going to get hurt because they were close enough that the rocks from the slings were flying past our heads. Now, they were not close enough that they were capable of accuracy, but they were potentially going to hit us if we didn't duck out of the way. So, you know, the lieutenant who was down the way a bit just outside of my sight, because we were kind of on a hillside uh, told my sergeant, hey, you need to shoot in the air, which I think is cowardly. He's the, he's the commander at that point. He should have done it himself. So he told my sergeant, you need to shoot in the air. Okay. And I said, huh? I said, okay, we need to. I, I, again, I'm from memory, but I know vaguely. I told the guys after we'd already spread down, probably I said to spread down to create cover more area. Um, I'm just a soldier with shitty-ass Hebrew. Luckily, my squad and the individuals in the photo all spoke English, so that made it easy for me, especially under duress. But I said, fuck that, we're all shooting, because it was, I believe, my lieutenant far right, just out of my sight, then my sergeant, then me, then the other individuals. There was probably five or six of us all the way down a huge hillside, and I said to my commander, we're all going to shoot, right? I believe something along those lines. He's like, "Ah, well, he said only one. I said, fuck that. We're all going to shoot. He's like, OK, fine. And then we all I yelled down all, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Hebrew Vira or something? I can't remember. My Hebrew is crap. I haven't spoken in years. Give me a break. Uh, shoot in the air. So we shot a couple shots. And then we got the command on the radio. Stop shooting because the, the lieutenant was like, why are you all shooting? Because <laughs> he probably didn't know what the hell was going on. But that, shou- that was enough to get the individual's group, the mob, who uh, was stopped. They stopped, and they didn't progress. And then we had, you know, five, ten minutes of us just staring them down uh, until uh, more individuals showed up. Now, I was furious after this. Here, me, the volunteer who doesn't know how anything works, I said, if this is the kind of stuff we're going to be doing riot control, Where's a riot control gear? All we had was lethal force. Now, my captain at that time, I've told, uh, oh, I remember his name. His name is Nathan Natan, who was, I believe, a Russian originally who had served, I believe, in Dubdavan, which is an elite uh, undercover uh, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency unit, who was our captain at the time he said you know you're right i think something along those lines and you could see and I, I don't know whether other people uh complained too but you know within a week we had all of a sudden the rubber bullets the gas tear gas and other tools that are non lethal cuz again nobody we don't want to be shooting people if we don't have to again barring a lethal situation we're not interested in that so you can fuck off with your bullshit social media Memes that are so misrepresentative, misinformation, nonsense about Israel and the IDF. Yes, you get the occasional dickhead. Okay, and just so you know, the, the IDF itself usually wants to slam those dickheads in jail. And it's usually the politicians who play interference that get them out. But the reality is the IDF is very strict itself. Um, that they don't tolerate abusive force. Uh, and it's just generally not allowed. I, myself uh, we had arrested an individual I've probably talked about it before who was a gun smuggler for terrorist organizations we weren't supposed to arrest them. I believe Dudeven actually was, but they this person had run before, so we knew they were uh, a running issue and uh, we had gone in and arrested him and that's where I really that that mission I really learned the concept of the fog of war it's not just something in video games it is a real thing no matter how much you study maps and show up things go sideways you end up in wrong places we got the right guy though before you make any stupid ideas um we had him in a we got him in an armored vehicle he ended up in our vehicle that i was in and uh everyone was tired because we'd been on call for like hours waiting for this mission to go on and it was like three or four in the morning when we went and uh this idiot was started hitting him, right? and the guy's already blindfolded and handcuffed, and just for you aware, it's so that they don't know what's going on, and they're less likely to be violent, so one of the soldiers started hitting him. I was furious, called bullshit on it, now imagine this guy, this is where I feel for the guy, The he probably doesn't speak, uh, well he may speak English, because a lot of the Arabs, Palestinians spoke English, not Hebrew and Arabic, Now, the soldier in question speaks English. I was screaming at him in English because it's easier for me when I'm tired. He was screaming at me in Hebrew. Our commanders who were in the front seats were curious as to what was going on. And I told them what was happening, and they were furious at the guy. They're like, what the fuck are you doing? Get in the fucking front, right? And then I went to the captain at the time, and I had him kicked out of combat. So just so you're aware, it's not tolerated. And uh, he was kicked out for a long time. He might have come back later because someone higher up who was religious and and kind of an asshole might have let him back in because they needed more soldiers. But uh, a lot of the commanders no longer wanted to work with that soldier because he's an ass and he was well documented as being a very problematic soldier. So they do exist. You'll find them in every army, but my experience was it was dealt with swiftly and they were removed from service. They should have been kicked out of the army, but again, one of Israel's problems is actually lack of manpower and a lot of times they're desperate because they're running around doing a lot of stuff that they really don't want to be doing despite what some of you may think but they don't have a choice. I don't want to get into politics too much with that, but I'm more talking about my personal experience. I actually ended up with more general riot control or mob experience than I did soldiering. It was a lot of police work, right? And we mostly most of the time managed to keep things peaceful occasionally rocks. Now I just wanted to talk about the famous 2011 Vancouver Stanley Cup riots um, which were in the city where I'm more or less around Vancouver itself. I don't live in but I'm in around Vancouver. Look them up. I remember showing if I was in the military at this time I missed the Olympics. Shucks. Uh, which was 2010, but in 2011 I was in Israel in the army, and I showed pictures of the burning cars, and my friends in Israel said, um, "What Palestinian city is this?" And I said, "This is in Canada," and they're like, "What the fuck?" And I'm like, "You never guess what they're rioting about?" <laughs> I said, "What?" I said, "Hockey," and they were like, "What the fuck is wrong with the Canadians?" They could not understand you're rioting and burning things down for a sport. Right, They just assumed it's some city that's it, it, rioting in, in, in one of the various Palestinian Authority jurisdictions or Jerusalem or something. I was like, no, it's Vancouver. Now, I remember, though, reading about how angry the public in Vancouver was about e- not doing anything. Now, good news, the crowd wasn't that bad. As destructive. That crowd was 100,000 people plus. Could have easily... Just burned the whole downtown core down if they would really wanted to. And it showed an example of mob mentality. There were a lot of very good people who got swept up in the motions of the mob and ended up losing all sorts of jobs. People lost uh, stuff for university, opportunities, and most people ended up getting caught. So nowadays with technology, guess what? The crowd doesn't protect you. The last time Vancouver had rioted was in 1994, also related to... The Stanley Cup hockey playoffs, but anyways, my point was is that the public who know nothing about use of force complained about the Vancouver police not doing enough to stop it, and what they did was they sat there and kind of corralled and kept it contained, but didn't get engaged. They were right to do so, and anyone who said otherwise are complete morons because hundred thousand people, I think I don't know seven hundred cops. With no riot control gear. For some stupid reason, they didn't learn from 94 and they weren't ready for it. Believe me, if 100,000 people and 700 cops uh, meet and it goes sideways, people are getting killed. Plain and simple. Because 700 people, 100,000 people. You sit there, well, they have guns. Okay, they have guns, it's 100,000 people. What you need to understand is 100,000 people that rushes people, even with guns. Mm, And if they're doing it with sufficient commitment, yes, people will die, but those cops are quickly overwhelmed. Think of the Alamo if you're Texas. If there are sufficient enough numbers, it doesn't matter if you have guns, they will overwhelm you. And that would have been a nightmare for all parties over-exist. Now, it is Canada, so I'm not sure it would have resulted in that kind of potential, but I can tell you the fear that a police officer is experiencing... If there's that many people and you don't have riot control gear, because you're thinking, am I going to have to shoot someone? I don't want to shoot someone. And if you're thinking that, you're an asshole and shouldn't be a police officer. And you're thinking, I don't want to get overwhelmed. I want to go home to my family. I want to go home. And it's a real problem, a decision-making problem. So what they did was corralled and made sure they didn't get outside of the areas that they were. They let people out as needed and just sort of managed the situation. It's beautifully done given the circumstances. They uh, got in a big trouble, um, though after the fact, though, they shouldn't have. Um, so I'm just going to read on uh, Wikipedia here just sort of what it says about the aftermath. In the immediate aftermath, Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robinson initially attributed the situation to a, quote, a small group of troublemakers. They always say that. Small group of troublemakers. Well, it's called mob mentality, dickheads. It spirals real fast. It only takes a couple people. Anyways, Vancouver Police Department Jim Chu, he was very good said that uh, instigators appeared to be some of the same individuals involved in protests in the opening days of 2010. See, a small group of dickheads can rile up a large group of people. And as I said, a lot of people got riled up that normally are totally fine people. It's mob mentality. You need to be aware of it so that you don't get swept up by it. Anyways, and that they came equipped with eye protection, gasoline, and other tools. He called them criminals and anarchists. They probably are, for sure disguise themselves as fans the idea that anarchists basically they used the hey 94 riot happened we can probably do that again the idea that the anarchists were involved in the violence was rejected by ubc political scientist professor glenn cutler in others vancouver center it gets tagged as anarchist activity is just more assumption of bias has been around for a long time not necessarily true i could be a bit of both be honest anyways anarchists are a conventional scapegoat before the police deflect responsibility for what happened so you got the people who don't like police in this case an academic and the police and just so you know it is a tactic that some police groups not that i'm aware of in canada but never say never where they plant people to forget that's not the case here though um uh, forgot there's a name for those those plants and crowds to rile up the crowd because the thing is that mob mentality is a massive thing. Now, the question is, though, if there was gasoline, where would they get it from so quick, right, in the mob? So that would indicate that there were anarchists or those looking to do it. But again, there's a lot of normal people who ended up doing damage. Uh Again, one critic indicated the authorities had made several mistakes in the planning. That is true, because if there was a riot in '94, why were you not equipped for riot gear in 90, uh, 2010? So that part is true. That was probably a political move less than a policing move, but politicians never want to take responsibility. Cleanup. After the riot, thousands of volunteers organized via texting, social media. actually, they did a pretty good job cleaning up. Criminal prosecution. So just so you know, you are not protected in a crowd anymore, so don't use anonymity to think you can hide away because as many as 70 officers from eight different police agencies formed integrated riot investigation team tasked with sifting through thousands hundreds of thousands of hours of videos several participants in riots turned themselves into police because their faces were on tv including the person responsible for setting the first car on fire more than a hundred thousand uh, photos and 1200 to 1600 hours of video recorded. just so you know uh, this riot in particular led to new technology that is now used globally where they can track you throughout the riot using all the data that they have. So again, you are not protected through anonymity in a riot. That is why a lot of laws say no face coverings in public because that will protect you. Ironically, they were demanding we wear it for COVID, which was completely unnecessary. Won't get into that. At, uh, well, not completely unnecessary. Mostly unnecessary, given what we know now, and they kind of knew then. But anyways, that's off topic. Hilarious that uh, it does create protection from those wishing to do harm, which you saw in Antifa riots all throughout the West Coast and through several other BLM-related things. Yes, they're real. Yes, they're a terrorist organization. They're listed as a terrorist organization because there are a bunch of terrorists. Antifa actually are. Anarchists, so stop pretending they're not that. You're an asshole, not having an honest conversation if you do not deny it. Of course, from that uh, riot, there was a famous photo of the couple kissing on the ground. I actually saw a follow-up 10 years later. The, anyways, So, riots are difficult to control, especially with limited people, I can speak, but they can be de-escalated if you use appropriate situations. Now, I can say that shooting in the air would not have been appropriate for the Vancouver riots because of the buildings downtown. It would have been a very tricky situation, so I think they did a really good job, considering they were probably thrown under the bus by the politicians who ultimately decide on the funding for the specific kind of events. Blame the politicians, not the police. It's usually the politicians' faults. Just saying. So I hope that gives you a little bit of insight into um, one of the more harrowing experiences I had in the IDF and also riots and mob mentality. They are terrifying. This is why I advise my students and myself, don't stay if you think it's about to get violent and there are large groups. Uh, I personally avoid protests even if I uh, support them because I despise large groups. Uh, Just personally, and I know what can happen. And I don't want to be there, uh, so that's my personal thing. I do support peaceful protesting 100%. I don't feel comfortable in crowds like that because of my personal experiences. And if I don't have tools I'm uh, legally allowed to use, I don't want to be there. However, if you feel comfortable going to uh, legal peaceful protest, by all means, despite what our governments keep saying, a bunch of authoritarian assholes to think that you should not be able to protest peacefully no matter the reason there was cases in canada though where peaceful protests were instigated by uh police uh the g8 summits i uh, way back in the day there was this history of that it was looked into the police were definitely in the wrong in that case uh, again in the vancouver riot it was uh politicians fault sorry fuck you stop blaming the police for everything Uh, Okay, so last one. I just thought I would throw it in here because it's a nice way to uh, close this up. Is from Ted. So one may walk in peace. So one may walk in peace. So one may walk in peace. The wise words of Emmy Deor highlighted in the UTKM student guide and White Belt workbook. To me, it certainly has a compelling draw not only as a journey, but as a destination. I'm a lifelong learner who has exhausted many of the usual avenues in trying to keep balance in my life and to feel at ease. Over time, I noticed that all my endeavors to achieve this sense of stability lacked a universal application, resulting in the need to move on to the next thing. I was successful and restless at the same time and I was starting to feel like the clock was running out on finding a means for me to balance all of life's ups and downs. After almost a year of poking around the UTKM website, I attended my first Krav session on March 19th, 2019. Not quite sure what to expect or how I would respond. So who the hell am I anyway? Well, basically, I'm a middle-aged dad with two intrepid grommets, active kids who can't drive a dynamic wife, and I love to ski and kitesurf. Believe it or not, I'm on my 40th season of riding sticks in the snow, and my old man knees reveal themselves whenever we do side lunges during warmups. I'm on my second, third career as a teamster in the film industry, and I keep my life simple by being active, hanging out with my wife and kids, and doing some of the skiing stuff in the backcountry mountains. This sounds easy, but I have a complication that throws the ideal state into flux. My soul seems to have a tendency to either drive or attack itself. This unsteady state has been the fire under my, many of my successes, but also the root cause of many of my unnecessary life problems that I have brought to bear on myself and my family. I am relatively easygoing and hard-working, but I also have a deep-seated temper. With all of this over-the-map mix, it feels like my soul has either an itch that needs to be scratching or a scar that needs healing. Perhaps both. My upbringing was pretty solid with lots of opportunity for success, so I'm not claiming a woe-is-me scenario. I have no idea how this internal state came about, but I do know that when I am not in training, scenario that involves a routine and pushing limits, I get restless, frustrated, and worst of all, angry. In my personal experience, the expression of rage are not about being mad at something, but more about losing control to gain control. It's fleeting, fragile, and ineffective, as the fallout tends to be greater than the gains. In the past, I controlled this uneasiness through competitive endurance sports, but the feeling of peace and stability started to decline when I could not complete the required 20 to 30 hours of training time per week. At age 41, All of my left ankle ligaments had to be surgically repaired, and I knew that I needed to move away from doing all the types of adventure sports, instead seeking to embrace lifelong activities that challenge my body and mind. So why Krav? As I mentioned before, I have engaged in many different activities to bring some ease to my ongoing restlessness, ranging from competitive cycling, skateboarding, playing bass, bass in bands, and completing an MBA at UBC. These endeavors certainly did add a positive element to my life, but they all missed one essential element, a lifelong universal application. One thing, the event or opportunity was over. The skills and training that satisfied my soul's itch slash scar conundrum would fade away. Essentially, it took me almost a lifetime to realize that my relentless pursuit of new activities was never truly meeting my needs, and that I needed a baseline skill that I could bring to any activity of my choice. If I'm the only caretaker responsible for keeping my life in balance, then I need a universal approach to help manage the ever-changing elements of my life, including my emotional cycles, its benefits, and its responsibilities. The UTKM White Belt Handbook states that, Krav is not a martial arts, but rather a mentality and a self-defense system that starts with critical thinking and situational awareness. Bingo! The philosophical match I was looking for, with the training scenarios that I enjoy. More importantly, the UTKM curriculum also emphasizes gradual skill building and deep appreciation of the basics. I love new things, and the soul itch I described earlier has a tendency to drive me too quickly desiring progression versus mastery of skills that I have learned. This has always caused some interesting problems. For example, my ankle injury was due to the fact that I tried to land on a skateboard trick in my 40s that I couldn't even pull off in my 20s. Oops. With Krav, I learned to embrace a new learning approach that would test my resolve through simple physical movements in complex scenarios. I find that it is impossible to feel restless or uneasy if my body is positively fatigued and my mind has been challenged to act. After two years, one bust at hand, and several sparring humiliations, it is it is still a good match? Well, my ongoing restlessness feels more often in balanced than not, and I love the fact that Krav is an ongoing mental and physical discovery, which is an adventure at its finest. After a long week at work, I enjoy the challenge of requiring myself to be 100% present for several hours. My daughter and I spend the drive home laughing about our various sparring mishaps but also talked about the things we learn. It's a shared experience that I would never trade for anything, and one I hope to bring my son along. He's training BJJ at Budo Mixed Martial Arts. Still not convinced by my post? Well, today I had my commercial driver's license medical exam to renew my Class 1 license, and the physician was a little disbelief over my low heart rate and ideal blood pressure despite an average 85-hour work week. The physician joked that I did not look like a typical truck driver and that it seemed very relaxed and engaged for a Sunday morning. I left that appointment with a feeling of pride knowing that with all this training, lifelong learning, and exposure that UTKM brings to us students, we really do get the opportunity to walk in peace. Written by Ted E. UTKM Yellow Belt. For training online, visit utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. Okay, so Ted is a middle aged student who found Krav Maga and it has made him better able to balance himself and work in peace, uh, walk in peace. And he also brings his family. uh, His daughter comes to Krav, his son goes to BJJ. And they learn martial arts together. And it's a wonderful family experience. So walk in peace. Bring your family to Krav Maga. Use TED's experience. The importance of family martial arts training where it is possible. Also, it helps you as a parent help your children learn because you know what they're doing. And you can support them. You can train together, and you as a parent can know that your fa- your children know how to protect themselves properly, and they're not solely reliant on you. That way, you don't create stupid shithead, uh millennial, woke people who blame everything for everything, and then can't take care of themselves. Hilarious, right? So, Ted is doing an amazing job as a parent, and... He has told me he's a lifelong utkm and he was a big support during the lockdown. So thank you. And to all the other students who supported the school so we didn't go bust. Thank you all. But understand that martial arts of any kind is a family endeavor, not just sending your children to learn discipline that you refuse to teach them. That's your fault as a parent and not just getting rid of your kids for a few hours. Again, failure as a parent but so that you can help your kids learn life skills that they will have for life that will help protect them because you can't always be there to protect them. And if you are, you're a helicopter parent and you're doing a shitty job as a parent. And before you uh, jump down my throat saying, you don't have kids yet, which I will eventually, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of information on how to be a good parent, but most people, uh, emotions get in the way of that. Uh, rightfully so. Um, just, you know, there's, a lot of reasonable data on how good parenting works, and I'll find out for myself when I have kids, of course, so be patient if you hate me for saying you're being shitty parents, because we'll see how I do, ha. but know that Krav Maga and self-defense is learning to walk in peace, knowing you have the confidence to protect yourself, whether it be on the bus, whether it be on the job, in the military, or armored guard. So you learn to walk in peace mentally, spiritually, and otherwise, although I don't really teach the spiritual per se, but I encourage people to find their paths. So I think that's good for this one. Nothing too crazy. Um, Again, I would love to do more tales from. So if you have a personal story, whether you're a police officer, you're a military, you're security, you're a civilian, that you want to share your experience. About self-defense, about an uncomfortable situation, whether you did well or poorly because other people can learn from your mistakes and you want to put yourself out there. I would love to accept the submissions. 500 words or more. Again, if it's very sensitive to you, we can publish it without your name. That is fine, but I would love for people to tell their stories. Now, I want you to be honest and truthful about these stories. Because if I end up publishing something that you bullshitted me, I'll be quite pissed. Uh, I, honesty will save the world to a degree. Don't be a total dickhead. But the more honest with, we are with ourselves, the more honest we are within people in general, um, the better the world will be, even though it's uncomfortable emotionally. So if you have stories related to self-defense, either for or against, good or bad, whatever, although there's no against self-defense you just learn to be defensive in nature someone's phone is going off in the background if you can hear it I would love to get your submissions 500 words or more again please try to make them coherent you can send submissions to info at urbantacticscanada.com subject line uh, uh, what is it called tales from for the blog or whatever you want to say try to edit for grammar and spelling if you can Uh, grammarly is a great tool uh, uh you know, Microsoft Word has good options. Um, if you're a great writer, awesome. If not, we do have an editor, but if the editor says this is too incoherent, he'll probably want to send it back for you to rewrite it because we don't understand what you're saying. It's hard to follow so and you can Google and YouTube writing tips. but please send your submissions to us so that I can have these kinds of things more often. Because when it comes to self-defense situations or unwanted situations or uncomfortable situations, you are not alone. And one thing I will give to the woke leftist people is if we talk about it, it reminds people that this stuff does happen and we need to stop burying our heads in the sand. But stop being obnoxious about it, you woke assholes. There's ways to do things in a meaningful way, such as teach a kid self-defense or learn self-defense. Just saying. Anyways, I hope this podcast has given you some perspective and it has helped you to learn to walk in peace as Emmy and now Ted have said. Thank you for listening. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Warriors Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions.